0: Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings uh, chapter 1. In our, uh, as, you t- uh, as you turn there, I just want to remind you that uh, in our times together over uh, the, the uh, past number of months, uh, we've been studying the life and times of the prophet Elijah. And God ministered to his, his uh, people through Elijah, and this was during the time of King Ahab. And Ahab and his wife uh, Jezebel were wicked, corrupting influences. You'll recall uh, in the life of Israel, they were like a uh, a sewage pipe that were just spewing idolatrous filth into uh, the community of God's people. And though uh, God had shown uh, graciously the utter powerlessness of Ahab's idols, uh, his idol particularly Baal, uh, by Uh, sending fire at Mount Carmel by confronting him through prophets, Ahab wouldn't abandon his uh, false god for the true God. And so during Elijah's ministry, you might recall uh, Ahab, in quite a reversal of what the kings were supposed to actually do, uh, he decides he wants a a man's vineyard. The man is Naboth, and so he conspires uh, to steal the vineyard. He murders Naboth, and we read about that in 1 Kings 21. And I say that or remind you of that because that's important backstory to what we'll read today. In 1 Kings 21, we read God's word of judgment on Ahab because of what he did to Naboth. And God said to Ahab that he was going to wipe out Ahab's family line and he would do it during the generations of Ahab's sons. And so with that, let's look at 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of uh, Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Rise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall, shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And Ahaziah said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50, and he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50, and he answered, And said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Let's ask for God's help now. O oh God, as we come to your word, we confess we need your help. Lord, our idols have the terrible effect of blinding us. We're not able to see, we're not able to hear. Uh, Lord, we are blind to the deepest realities of the universe. We are blind to the realities of who you are. And as we come to this passage, which deals with these things, Lord, uh, the forces of evil would conspire against us and seek to confuse us, uh, seek to provide justifications. Uh, But Lord, we pray that your word would go forth clearly that it would penetrate the confusion, that it would break through the blindness, that it would unstop our, he- our ears so that we would hear you and know you truly. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, do you have an opinion about William Henry Harrison? you don't know who William Henry Harrison is, I'll forgive you. Uh, Though he served as the ninth president of the United States, he held that distinction for exactly 31 days before he died of pneumonia. In the history books, Harrison's brief fling with presidential power isn't likely to be given much attention at all. He held office for such a brief period of time that apart from the tragic demise uh, that he had, he's more of just a An interesting bit of trivia. Well, with our attention turned to the reign of Ahaziah this evening, we uh, may have understood if the author of Kings had skipped over, or at least skimmed over, Ahaziah's reign, like we might with William Henry Harrison. Ahaziah was king over Israel for only two years. And though certainly more than 31 days, Ahaziah's reign was a blip compared with the 20-plus year reigns of Ahab, his father, or Jehoshaphat, his contemporary in Judah. But here's Ahaziah, not merely mentioned in passing, but featured in our chapter in this fantastic account. Maybe the first boys and girls who heard the book of Kings may have been scratching their heads in sort of a, a foggy recognition, like when I mentioned President Harrison's name. They would have been like, uh, "Ahaziah, who who exactly was that again? I know I should know this guy, but he's just vaguely familiar." Well, that's because uh, when Kings was first written, it was written some 150 to 200 years uh, after Ahaziah's reign, while God's people were living in exile. Between the time of Ahaziah uh, and the time when Kings was written, God's people had persistently chased after other gods. So that God would say, for instance, through his prophet Hosea, I will punish Israel for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And that's what God does. God's people are evicted from the land that God had given to them and they're cast into exile to live as servants under their conquerors. But God had promised that they wouldn't just stay there. He would graciously rescue them. He would bring them back home. So when God's people are hearing these words in their church services, there are people in waiting and there are people in preparation They're waiting for God to bring his people back home again. And they're needing to be prepared to know how they're to live uh, when they come back into that land. So the question we want to ask is, why is Ahaziah, with such a short reign, placed here? Why is his story here? Well, this story, like the rest of the book of Kings, was meant to explain the reason why the people were in exile... Uh, but it was also meant to help God's people think about how they were to live in the land as God's repentant people and specifically this passage was a warning message that speaks to God's people through this event and says all idolatry as opposition to God and his word is foolish it's offensive and it's dangerous And therefore, we should humble ourselves, we should turn from our idols, and we should cast ourselves upon the mercies of a God who has dealt with the offense of your idolatry and mine. Well, when the curtains rise on the second act of the book of Kings, we find ourselves staring at a horrific accident. Something had gone wrong, and Ahaziah, the king of Israel, had fallen from the second story of his palace in Samaria. And when the dust settles, we see a wounded king Ahaziah, and he's bedridden. He's gravely injured. But notice what Ahaziah does next. When emergency strikes, who's on speed dial? So Ahaziah sent messengers telling them, go ask Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Beelzebub. Beelzebub is just another uh, title or reference to one of the the foreign Baal gods that were uh, in existence around the the people of Israel. And when Ahaziah is wounded, he calls upon Beelzebub, uh, the so-called god of life and fertility. He calls upon this god who was worshipped by the neighboring Philistines. And this decision to go to to Baal for help, more than any injury that he sustained, was disastrous for Ahaziah. That Ahaziah would solicit help from Baal should and shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us, given given what we read at the end of 1 Kings 22, and you can uh, go there in your Bibles, it's just before what we read, verse 51 Ahaziah's reign is summed up with this miserable obituary. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him. And provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Though Ahaziah was king over Yahweh's people, his loyalties lay with the same idols that would destroy his father. Ahaziah was through and through. He was a Baal man. But then again, maybe it it does surprise us because here was a man who would certainly have known about the battles that his father Ahab had had with Elijah. Ahaziah would have known how God had sent a drought upon Israel for three years to show that Baal was, in fact, not the bringer of rain. Ahaziah would have known how Baal was exposed as a powerless no-show at Mount Carmel in the contest with the prophets of Baal and the Lord. He would have known how uh, his father's persistent resistance to God's word would have ultimately cost him his life. So it might shock us here, perhaps in the way that we're shocked when a child, though they've seen the destructive power of an addiction in their parent, is destroyed by that same addiction later in life. Because you'd think that having a front row seat to the the, the carnage caused by Ahab's idolatry would have sent Ahaziah running from uh, Baal with all his might. But sadly, here we find him running to Baal. What's also surprising and emphasized by being repeated three times in our chapter is that Ahaziah would actually leave Israel to consult with a foreign god. Though he knew Yahweh, the God of Israel, ah- Ahaziah would actually go well out of his way. He'd actually go 40 plus miles to Ekron to consult with another God besides the Lord. And so we have the question asked for the first time uh, by the angel of the Lord in verse 3. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? The question is rhetorical, but the answer is, of course there's a God in Israel. We've seen from him, we've heard from him throughout the book of Kings, just as Ahaziah would have known. The point is that Ahaziah, as his life hangs in the balance, he brazenly spurns the Lord for another god. And the repetition of this question three times is meant to drive home for us just how scandalous and offensive Ahaziah's turning to Baal of Ekron actually was. Maybe an illustration will help. Ladies, imagine that uh, you um, had to take your husband to the emergency room, and while you're there in the emergency room, uh, the nurse is asking the typical intake questions, uh, name, date of birth, allergies, etc. cetera. Uh, you know the questions. You can maybe answer them more accurately uh, than even your husband can. That's the case in our household. Uh, but the nurse then asks you the question that you'd expect. Well, uh, what's your emergency contact? Now, what would you say if when your husband's asked this, he gives the name of another woman? And I'm not talking about his mom, right? It would be a good thing that you're at the hospital at that moment because there's gonna be other injuries to attend to, okay? You would not be happy. You would be shocked by this personal offense. You might say, excuse me, I am right here. I drove you to the hospital. I'm married to you. I know how to take care of you. And yet you want to reach out to her? What's she going to do? You would find this incredulous. It's it's offensive because you're right there. By the promise of marriage, by proximity, uh, by the fact you just belong to each other, you are best suited uh, to your husband's care. His choosing someone else and someone who's not even close by would, uh, be so, would say something about what he thought about you, what he thought about your competence, what he thought about your relationship. It would be a personal affront because he was purposefully bypassing you for a lesser option. Well, in a similar way, Ahaziah indicates that his emergency contact remains even as he's on the precipice of eternity, the foreign idol Baal. Disastrously, Ahaziah chooses to snub the God of Israel, the God who had promised himself to his people, who had promised to take care of them, who was best suited to their care. And so this is our first point. Quite consciously, Ahaziah makes a deadly misstep when he chooses to snub the true God of Israel when he goes to a foreign false god. And this sets up a contest, a contest between representatives or messengers. Ahaziah will send messengers, and the Lord will send messengers. Both messengers are under orders, and the question is, whose messengers carry words of authority with them? The first contest of messengers is found starting in verse 3. When Ahaziah sends messengers to get a word about his future from Baal in Ekron, the Lord sends a messenger of His own, uh, the angel of the Lord. Angel in the original language, it's the same word as messenger. And so this heavenly messenger comes to Elijah and he instructs him to track down the king's messengers uh, and to uh, give them the following message: Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to Baal uh, over there? Because of this, Ahaziah, the Lord says, you're not going to get better, you're going to die. Now, though it's not stated outright, what we have here in Kings is a contest to demonstrate supremacy. We've seen it before at Mount Carmel. We've seen it between Micaiah and the false prophets. An ungodly human king dismisses the authority and power of God uh, through his false hopes, through trusting in idols, and so God challenges him and plans to expose him. That's how it was under Ahab, and it's how, unfortunately, it is, under his son. And so the author of the King of Kings is giving us here a, a contrast. Here's wounded Ahaziah. He sends his messengers from Samaria, and the Lord sends his messenger from heaven, and through uh, Elijah, brings this to the road leading to Ekron. So you've got the king of Israel and you've got the king of heaven, both expressing their purposes, their orders. And we're not given a direct account of what happened on the road uh, when Elijah encounters the messengers uh, from Ahaziah, uh, but we can tell from verses 5 to 8 that what happens is they they meet him uh, and then they abandon their mission and they go back to Samaria. Now here's the thing we need to uh, make sure we get about uh, kings in the ancient Near East in the ninth century. Uh, They had a pretty low tolerance for disobedience, uh, and they had a pretty high tolerance for the death penalty. And so everyone in the king's employ would have known that. So we're left to imagine, knowing that these guys would know that, what sort of authority Elijah must have exuded as he encountered these messengers on the road so that they would hear a message from some uh, scruffy unnamed dude and they would turn around and go back to Ahaziah. The king's surprised when they return, uh, but when he hears the explanation, he knows who exactly to blame. It's his father's old nemesis, it's Elijah. Now some have said that God's uh, interve- uh, the intervention of the messengers here is an act of grace upon Ahaziah, but I don't think that's the best conclusion to draw. This was part of God's fulfillment on his word that he had spoken to Ahab, that he would cut down Ahab's family tree. God had spoken, and his judgment is certainly going to come to pass. And what's more, in verse 4, when God says that Ahaziah is going to die, there's no conditions given to this. It's just judgment. So when God, through Elijah, turns back Ahaziah's messenger, he's curbing sin. He's he's preventing a sinful action from being added to Ahaziah's sinful intention. But more significantly, this is the first of three instances in our passage where God demonstrates his power over Ahaziah and his idolatry. And he demonstrates this before he enacts his judgment on Ahab's line. So Ahaziah, having had his messengers uh, kicked back to him, he sends a captain with 50 Men To shut up the prophet of God. He's thinking it's a rather intrusive thing for Elijah to tell him that he can't put his trust in Baal. Why does Elijah have to stick his nose in uh, where it's not wanted? It's sort of a personal choice, isn't it? Uh, that he would uh, choose to serve uh, Baalzebub. And yet, here's Elijah with the gall to tell him that he, he's wrong and he's, he's condemned. And so Ahaziah is going to use his power to shut up this pesky prophet. And so again, we've got this showdown between messengers here. And the king's guards find Elijah and they order him, according to the authority of the king, to surrender himself and come down. O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah responds, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And whoosh, fire comes down and burns him up. Now Ahaziah would have known that fire from heaven was a trademark of Elijah's God. Again, in 1 Kings 18, Mount Carmel, God sends fire from heaven to show that he's the true God and to show that Baal is a pretender, to show that God is zealous for his own glory. Ahaziah, though, uh, foolishly, isn't deterred by this. He sends a second set of troops And they come with more force or insistence. They say, the king orders you, Elijah, come down quickly. Or in parents speak, come here now. But Ahaziah, again, as he tries to assert his authority over God's spokesman, he doesn't see it. God sends fire to wipe out Ahaziah's men. So God shows uh, God uh, shows his word's authority over Ahaziah's messengers by turning them back, by turning them to ashes, and finally he shows his authority by causing Ahaziah's messenger to plead for mercy. When Ahaziah sends out orders to the third captain uh, to go, you can imagine he's scrambling to check his life insurance policy. And as soon as he sees uh, Elijah, the the captain falls down, sensing the power of God at work in this man, and he begs for him to be spared. Elijah, please, respect my life, respect the life of my men. Don't kill us. Now we don't know from this passage whether uh, this captain was uh, just... Whether he was filled with a godly fear or whether this was just self preservation, he thought, I'd better do something different. That's really secondary. What matters here is that as the captain humbles himself, submits to the Lord's messenger, this is the third sign of God's word through his messenger possessing more power, more authority than Ahaziah's orders. The petrified captain gets something. God is to be feared. Ahaziah supposedly uh, issues these authoritative proclamations, but it's all bluster. His guards are, are ineffective, they're declawed, and so we see these three encounters between his messengers and the Lord's, and it's the Lord who Ahaziah rejects and resists who's shown to have the true authoritative word. Well, the angelic messenger reassures Elijah that this envoy will not, cannot do him any harm. And so he tells him, you can go meet uh, with the king. And Elijah meets with the king and his messenger stays the same. He says, Ahaziah, you will certainly die. And that's exactly what happened. Ahaziah died, just as God said he would. And what's more, Ahaziah had no son to take his place. The throne passes to his brother And so we see the pruning shears of God's judgment beginning to lop off the branches of Ahab's family tree, just as God said he would. God's word of warning, his word of judgment, they're to be taken seriously here. He doesn't play around what he says he's going to do. And that's why Azai is cut down in the prime of his life without any heirs, because God is certainly going to keep his word of judgment on Ahab's family. So if you insist and persist in opposing God, choosing to make anything else the center of your life, you're going to come under his judgment and condemnation. There's no hope of slipping away. There's no hope that God's going to forget. God, the living God, is not to be trifled with. Something serious happening here. Now I said at the outset that this story was supposed to prepare God's people as they lived in exile, prepare them for the day that God would return them back to the promised land. Because idolatry wasn't just Ahaziah's story, it was Israel's story. Ahaziah was emblematic of Israel's idolatry as a whole. As a king, he he contributed to the idolatry, but he was also uh, an illustration of how Israel's hearts chased after, time and again, other gods. So this book, and this story in particular, is written to idolaters. Not pagan idolaters, but religious idolaters. It's written to Israel. And so Ahaziah's story is part of God's warning to idolaters whose names are on the church membership rolls. And it's for this reason, that this story, with all the the, the strange fire and all, that it speaks to you and me also. Because idolatry is not just a problem back then. And idolatry is not just a problem out there. But idolatry is a perpetual and universal problem. Idolatry is a you and me problem. Idolatry, as the Bible understands it, is having or inventing anything that you put your trust in uh, alongside of or above the true and living God. Luther put it this way. Idolatry is trusting in something other than God. For your ultimate security and happiness. So, more than just statues, idols can be material things, money, sex, stuff, or immaterial things, power, politics, nationality, a personal choice. It can be the identity that we proclaim and promote on our social media page and construct for ourselves. Now, if you don't think that you have an idol problem, let me ask you a couple questions Where's your joy? What or who do you dream about? What do you spend your time hoping for or thinking about? Where's your security? What worries you, keeps you awake at night, puts your stomach in knots? Is it what people think of you? Uh, How a particular election will turn out? What gives you peace? What soothes you? When you're anxious, what thoughts, what actions... Uh, calm you down, bring you relief. See, because of our sinful condition, our hearts are always bent away from God in worship to other things, things that he's made. So whatever these questions uncover for you, God, in this passage, is warning you that the place that you've given to those things or those people, whatever or whoever that is, that it's offensive, it's foolish, and it's dangerous. Is that how you think about your idols? I mean, sure, as an abstract principle, most of us would say that idolatry is wrong, Uh, it's sinful, we're conditioned to say that, but this passage wants to press us to say more. Absolutely, idolatry is sinful, but idolatry also goes against wisdom, it goes against God, And as such, it goes against our own well-being. Our idolatry is foolish. Our idols are powerless to deliver us. And so our idolatry is a, a foolish substitution for the living God. Ahaziah foolishly thinks that his idols can give him what he needs. His father's life had shown how powerless Baal actually was. In his own life, Ahaziah had seen the power of God at work, and yet he stakes his life, he stakes his happiness on an idol that some guy had made. It's foolish. It's stupid. Yet this is what we do. When we run to idols for what God ultimately intends to give us in himself... What he's promised to give us, it's madness. Like Ahaziah, we should know better. We've seen how our idols, whatever they are, how they don't satisfy us. And by contrast, we have testimony of God's power. And yet, we still run to them. Our idolatry is a foolish substitution. Our idolatry also causes us to substitute God as our highest treasure. And so our idolatry is offensive to God. Is it because there's no God among us, among the church, that we spend our money, waste our time, and sacrifice our relationships to worship the God of sex? Why do you run to videos on your phone to validate you or give you relief or make you happy? Is it because there's no God who can do this? Our our idolatry says what we won't admit with our mouths. No, I don't trust that God can give me what I need. I don't trust that God will give me what I need. And though there's a God we know who who promises, uh, has made promises to his people, though there's a God who has demonstrated his power to us, he's promised to be with us, I think that I'm better off getting what I need from my girlfriend or from my kids or from my boss. God finds it completely offensive. He won't stand for it. It's an offense, an abomination that he will deal with. Now that being the case, since our idolatry offends God, we must say that since our idols offend him, they bring us under his judgment. And so our idolatry is dangerous in that our idolatry provokes the living God to anger. We uh, just as we see in Ahaziah, it, it's a danger to us. Yes, sometimes our, our idols bring upon us earthly uh, consequences, as Ahaziah experienced. We can destroy our, our bodies, our families, our our, our our relationships. But always with idolatry, when there's no repentance, it has eternal consequences. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't be deceived. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just another way of saying that what our idolatry deserves is to be separated from the enjoyment of God's goodness and God's favor forever and to be under his contempt and his judgment. And so in that man's idolatry is a flagrant offense against the holy God, and it brings us under his judgment. It's dangerous, eternally dangerous. So let me ask you this again Is this how you think of your idols? Do you view the things that are vying for the center of your life like this? Maybe one of the idols vying for your heart is food or drink. You go to food or drink uh, to find comfort, to cope with stress. Rating the fridge seems so innocent, Uh, but if it's become for you what you count on, it's become your emergency contact, your idol, can you see it as foolish, offensive, and dangerous? In the right place under God, many of the things that become our idols are good things, things to be enjoyed. Yet when they usurp God, even telling us to disobey God, we need to see them for what they are, foolish, offensive, and dangerous. But isn't this a little bit exaggerated? Apparently, to make his point, God was willing to put to death 400 men at Mount Carmel and another 103 men in our story. And we say, well, like, isn't this bloodshed just a little, a little over the top? This isn't the loving, friendly God that we'd care to imagine. Where's the grace here? Well, in Luke 9, this story actually uh, comes up in an encounter with Jesus and his disciples. In Luke 9, 51, and following Jesus here. God in the flesh. He's passing through Samaria. And he's going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And uh, as he's doing this, uh, the Samaritans hear he's coming uh, and they reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. So here's the Samaritans. They reject God who has come down to them. They don't want anything to do with him. And so James and John ask Jesus, uh, should we give the Samaritans the Elijah treatment? Should we call down fire from heaven and just destroy these guys? And Jesus, unlike Elijah, rebukes his disciples When they reject God in the flesh, right there. And so you might say, well, see, with Jesus, things are different now. No fire and brimstone, grace covers us. And while I say, yes, there's grace for idolatry, I think you've misunderstood the point. Jesus is going to Jerusalem there to die, he sets his face to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He rebukes James and John not because their rejection of God is not a serious offense. He he rebukes them because he's on a mission to deal with the offense of our rejection of God. All idolatry is foolish. It's offensive. It's dangerous. And so we can look at God's judgment on Ahaziah and we can look at his sending down fire from heaven to consume the 102 men and we might recoil and ask, really, really, Is my idolatry really that serious? And that's not a bad question. It's just a question at the wrong place and in the wrong time. Because what we need to do is we need to walk together to Jerusalem, to stand outside her gates, to stand beneath the cross, and to see him dying there, Jesus, the precious Son of God, as the fire, unrelenting fire of God's judgment is poured out upon him who took upon himself the sins of his people. And there, as we're standing there, we can ask the question, is my idolatry really that serious? As we're standing there, we know that there is only one possible answer to that question. Yes. Yeah, it is. For him to die for me, it is. But here's the thing, though. If the cross is where we see most clearly the greatness of the foolishness and offense of our idolatry toward God, it's also the place where we see the greatness of the love of God toward us. Because out of the riches of his mercy at the cross, God gave his son for foolish and offensive idolatrous sinners. There God willingly, graciously substitutes himself for us because we've sinfully substituted idols for him. And there Jesus bears the fire which we deserve. And there our sinful passions are crucified with Christ and the grip of our idols on us begins to weaken. So brothers and sisters, look, look, at God's judgment upon idolatry. See that it's foolish, offensive, and dangerous. But see it ultimately there at the cross, where we see not only how great a danger it is, but we see what great hope that we have. That not only the punishment for the sins of our idolatry might be forgiven, but that the hold of our idols on us might be broken, and we might be freed by them. And so let me invite you to lay your idols down at the foot of the cross, to cry out to God, who not only has poured out the punishment for our idolatry on Jesus, but he has made a way for us to be freed from their power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit our great need on our own, in ourselves. We are subjects of the kingdom of darkness, willingly so. We are in bondage uh, to our sin, slaves uh, to idols. We think, Lord, that we might have mastery on them. We think that they serve us, but we serve them and we place ourselves against you. And Lord, so often we're blind to that. So Lord, I ask that you would give grace to us as a congregation, that you would help us to see with greater clarity, first of all, what our idols are. That are vying for first place in our heart, but then you would also help us to see our idolatry, the true seriousness of it, the foolishness of it, the offensiveness of it, that we would see our idols in light of the cross. We wouldn't despair, but that we would run to you for forgiveness and for freedom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Do you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, the blessing of our God, our hope, our portion. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.